Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Kenny Myler, is the founder of the NGO More Than Me, which provides schooling and counseling to adolescent girls in Monrovia, Liberia. Katie founded the NGO in 2009, but during the Ebola outbreak last year, it transformed into a community hub in the West Point neighborhood of Monrovia, which was the hardest hit neighborhood in the hardest hit city in the hardest hit country by the outbreak. We have a powerful discussion about why she'd opted to stay in Liberia during the Ebola crisis, even though she had herself become symptomatic. And she talks openly about how she dealt with all the death and despair surrounding her. Like there were times where you you just lie to people. Like I told this little eight-year-old boy named Charlie, I was like, your parents sent me here because he's laying outside of a treatment unit with his pants down. He had gone to the bathroom on himself and he had like blood coming, dripping down his mouth. He's by himself. And like, well, of course I'm going to like, lie. so I'm like, your parents sent me here to tell you how much they love you. And they're thinking about you and like whatever I could say to help comfort that all the treatment units were full. So I couldn't help him get to a treatment unit. I gave him a bag of water. Um, you know, what else can you do? Katie grew up poor in a very wealthy town in New Jersey, and she discusses how service trips with her church first exposed her to extreme poverty around the world. She tells an ultimately inspiring story about the founding of More Than Me, and now how with the partnership of the government of Liberia, she's trying to replicate the success of More Than Me in other parts of the country. We kick off, though, discussing an unfortunate new resurgence of Ebola in Liberia several months after the country was declared Ebola-free. I think you'll love this conversation. I know I did. I put a link to More Than Me up on the globaldispatchespodcast.com homepage in case you are inspired to check them out. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me if you'd like to suggest any topics to cover or people to interview. You can also check out our really robust archive of nearly 90 long-form conversations like the one you're about to hear with foreign policy thought leaders, civic leaders, academics, or people who one way or another shape how we understand and experience the world. So now here is my conversation with Katie Myler. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, I wonder if Ebola is going to be a part of Liberia for a long time. There's a, you know, it's, it's more like learning how to live with it or or to make sure that when it's found that it, the people who have it get the best help that they can as soon as they can. 
um, and to stop the spread of it as soon as possible. I don't think that like the fear of it spreading to, to you know and having the impact that it had before is there as much just because the systems and the you know the people are more familiar with Ebola and before it was just something that was really unknown and people didn't know how to react or what to do. Um, I didn't know this child personally that that died. Um, it's really unfortunate. I mean, I personally, I mean, I might get into this later on in the interview, but saw a lot of people die and it's, it's definitely still see flashes of, of dead children and of some of the images that went on. And it's, it's awful. It's one of the most awful things on our, it's, I can't, it's unimaginable. So it's, you know, I think the big question was, I was actually with the minister of education and some of the, you know, some people from his, uh, from his ministry in East Africa, this past weekend and they were really questioning and wondering where did this, you know, stem from? Um, and I don't think that that answer, we haven't found that answer yet. And just wondering where, when this is going to be over, if it will ever be over. But I think that it even, um, it like catalyzes or it, it puts a, a flashlight or a spotlight on the need for, um, for education even more. And I think what's, you know, what, what hopefully we'll get to talk about in this interview is what's scarier than Ebola, um, the conditions that allowed for it to happen and the, and the conditions that persist, you know, after the, the height of it and after it's left the news um, like it was, you know, a, a year ago. So I've, I've been to Liberia a couple times. Both were before the uh, Ebola outbreak and both were very brief trips, just reporting trips. But how... How has uh, Liberia changed, or, or even the city of Monrovia changed uh, as a result of the Ebola outbreak? Or has there been like a noticeable change in either people's attitudes or just like the functioning of the the city and the country? One thing that you'll hear about is the sanitation levels have increased, and that's one you know just one way. Um, I think that in general, like there's, I think in any sense of emergency or. Um, when when people go through a tragedy together, there is a sense of camaraderie. I don't know, like there's this energy there. There's uh, people feel closer, and they've come through. So I have feel that with, um, and I don't know if it's just because you know I was there, or um, you know I definitely feel that bond closer personally. But I think in general, um, it it exists in the country, or you know we beat this together. You know, Liberians. Um, you know, came together. There's a pride that they were the, you know, one of, they were the first country in West Africa to alleviate evil. And it was done by the community. It wasn't the international community. It were, you know, it was the Liberian people. Um, so, I mean, there's that. I mean, there's definitely, you know, people talk about it, but it's, they've gone back to their, you know, everyday life. It's not like people are living in fear every single second of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, Life no. has kind of gone back to, to normal. Like not like it was in the height of the outbreak where people were living in fear every moment of the day. Every second there was, I mean, there was a, there were months where you wouldn't talk about anything. There's like, there's no other conversation other than Ebola. Uh, but how we, often did you wash your hands during that time? I mean, we're, our hands were all, everybody's hands. You just like bleach to the core. I mean, you, you, tr- they said every 10 minutes you tried constantly if you weren't washing them every 10 minutes, there was like a, you know, they were handing anywhere you go, you would get these uh, liquid, you know, the desensitization liquids or I'm saying the word. (laughs) 
desensitization. Yeah, desensitization. What is it? Desan- uh, probably desanitization, but I think desensitization is is probably more uh, more <laughs> accurate. Yeah. Uh, lots of that going on everywhere for sure. Um, gloves and it wasn't. It got to the point though where like it wasn't even weird to see someone like walking down like with a full on, uh, you know, protective gear hazmat suit. It was just like you didn't even look at them anymore. Um, did did you personally ever have like close calls during the height of the outbreak? I did. I was in. Um, I spent two days at Doctors Without Borders, so MSF. It was. Um, I had every single symptom. I had a fever and diarrhea and shakes. Um, I I don't know why. It's like weird to me that I had every symptom. And then I so they uh, my friends at Doctors Without Borders were like, "You need to come in." and take a test and I was like thinking man if I don't have it I'm gonna get it going in there um so I I did I went and listened I went in I was super scared and I 50% chance that I had it although like it would make sense that I had it because I was like in I would go into the holding centers and I would follow um the ambulance with the you know I I just being me like I would make sense that I would get it so um I was freaking out a little bit internally I didn't tell anybody other than I told my board chair and like one of my donors just in case I wanted to leave I wasn't even sure if I had it if I would have left Liberia but um yeah no I spent I was there and it was that you know there were people dying all around me there was a woman who was like freaking out that she was about to die and she was around my age I'm 33 and I was like you're gonna be okay like you're in the treatment like you're in MSF this is the best place you're you're gonna get help you're all these people are dying outside you're inside and like I prayed with her to make her feel better we sang to her um and I'm like we're all in here together and then it was all I mean she died right in front of me she was like it's you know so it I mean, it was like, I lied to her, but I didn't know what else to do. Like there were times where you you just lie to people. Like I told this little eight-year-old boy named Charlie, I was like, your parents sent me here because he's laying outside of a treatment unit with his pants down. He had gone to the bathroom on himself and he had like blood coming, dripping down his mouth. He's by himself. And like, of course I'm going to like lie. So I'm like, your parents sent me here to tell you how much they love you and they're thinking about you. And like whatever I could say to help comfort, you know, at that level, I could, there was no, nothing else that all the treatment units were full. So I couldn't help him get to a treatment unit. I gave him a bag of water. Um, you know, what else can you do? Um, so there's some really, really awful stories along those lines, but no, I, I got, I mean, I got the note that I didn't have. I mean, I got all the testing. It was eight hours in the, the first night at MSF. And they're like, we want you to come back again tomorrow. And then they told me I needed, they're like, you're going to leave the country you know, you need to go to the States in case it shows up later on because you've been around, you know, there's a chance that you have it. So you should go back to the States. And uh, there was, it was, I wasn't leaving. I was like, there's no way I'm leaving until it's like, this is over. Um, but maybe you shouldn't put that on your show. <laughs> you shouldn't put that on your show. I don't know. I think there was like an addiction in a way to like the emergency of it. But like also I think the purpose, the amount of purpose that you feel at one time, it's like, you know, that like that ambulance ride could have saved lives or that that child that was about to go into the treatment unit that you have diverted out of the treatment unit. And he had a house for children for, you know, a couple of months, you know, they're no longer, they don't, they didn't get Ebola. Like some of them ended up get, like having it already. So they got it, but some of them didn't. And like those kids would have got it if they went inside. So you're just like the immediate, you know, you're so purposeful and useful in one. You know, it's definitely the most important thing I've ever been a part of in my life. 
Well, I get this sense just from, from I mean, I, I don't know you at all personally, but I get just the sense from, from listening to you talk, though, that, um, you know, there are these kind of different personality types. There are people who, um, in that kind of situation, would want to to get out, maybe help from the outside. There are others who, I think, feel this kind of spirit, almost like an esprit de corps, like want to be a part of this team that is um, helping to defeat this disease. Uh, and I think you referenced that earlier, how there is this kind of general sense of camaraderie in Liberia now that the disease has largely been def- been defeated. And I just get the sense that you want to be part of that team to help defeat the disease. Well, I didn't originally. I mean, originally I was freaked out and I couldn't even vote. Like I have 150 students. We have a school. Like right now more than me is transformed. I mean, we're now an organization working with the Ministry of Education to rebuild the education system. Prior to Ebola, we were a school with 150 students. I've lived in Liberia 10 years. Liberia is my home. Like these people are not program people. These are like kids that I love. I'm like a godmother. I have neighbors. Like it's like, this is my life. So it was a little bit weird to me that I would spend, you know, when the people that I love and in a place that I've spent the last decade of my life is under this like Ebola, you know, attack of any kind that I would just stay in New York City and like hang out with my friends at the bar waiting to see if my friends, you know, my friends in Liberia died or not. Like, I was like, no, of course, it's scary. And of course, just like everybody else, I was like, I'm not a medical person. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. But what I'm going to do is get over there and see who's doing what and what needs are. And I can be a megaphone because I'm loud and I will get what you know. I'll, <laughs> that's one thing about me. I will get something, I will get stuff done. So I'll find out what needs there are and, and raise a megaphone for that and like be the eyes and ears of like major donors like that, are, that aren't going to come to Liberia. I can call them and tell them where to put their money. And if, at first I was not thinking it would be to us and to our, you know, to the work of the community that we ended up supporting. Um, originally I thought I would go and just find who was, you know, most active and like, and, push funds to them. But I, to be honest, on the front lines where it was needed most other than, um, MSF and, you know, they have their treatment unit. I didn't on the front lines, the people I saw most active were the community members and they didn't have the resources that they needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'd love to, to learn how this became your life. Um, how, how did you get involved in this line of work? Where, where are you from? First of all, where were you born? I grew up in New Jersey. So it's like 30 miles outside of Manhattan. And, um, you know, I grew up in a super wealthy community, um, the King of Morocco, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mike Tyson, Whitney Houston are from where I'm from. But my mom was a single mother of three who worked an overnight shift at Lipton Tea Factory making minimum wage. So my whole life I was like, I thought the world was really rich and we got, you know, gypped somehow. And I was like angry at, at God for giving me this like lot in life. Um, but then when I was, I got really involved with my youth group at church in high school, we went to like, we were doing these like lots of community service stuff, go feed the homeless. I play guitar like Phoebe from friends. So we would go, you know, go do that. And like, I, it was a good thing for me to like get my head out of my own butt and like realize the world that's bigger than me. And, um, and then when I was 17, they were going to Haiti to do a mission strip. And I made a sign, send Katie to Haiti. And I stood outside of grocery stores. And uh, raise enough money to go. And I learned that 88% of the world lives in developing countries. And I was actually one of the world's wealthiest people, regardless of the fact, you know, despite the fact that we grew up in poverty and on government assistance in the United States. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, I'd always wanted people to help us. And now I realize, like, I'm in the I'm in the position to do something. And what am I going to do about it? The whole my whole worldview flipped upside down. Well, what what kind of church was it? 
Well, I grew up going to like a more of like an evangelical. I grew up Catholic actually, and then we started going in high, when I was in high school. It's the evangelical church uh, where people like clap their hands and dance around and you know sing songs and stuff. But they were really um, it was a evangelical, but they were very much about you know serving others and um, like social justice, um, and it was good because it like definitely exposed me to a, a world that was bigger than just me and. Um, I wanted to help. Yeah. I mean, I asked just like knowing what I know about Liberia is that it's a very religious place, or at least there's a lot of churches uh, yeah. on the side of the road. So I would imagine that like having that um, ability to, uh, to, to connect yeah. in, in that way is probably pretty yeah. important. Yeah, it definitely is. I, I would say like my faith journey has, um, you know, isn't, isn't, you know, has taken its own turns, but like, I definitely relate to Liberians in that way. And I think in, especially in a, emergency like this where you know people were uh you know in in when in front of in death you know that you definitely could pray and sing the liberian gospel songs and i did and um and it, like people who i thought were like dead would raise their arms in the air and start saying you know pray <laughs> like i thought you were dead like i'm not i don't mean to laugh at that but it's just like it was beautiful um that we could you know have that one level of um you know, in such a horrible time. I, I remember calling my board chair, like just being like, Katie, she's, her name's Katie too. I'm like, I really don't know what to do. She's, I'm like, the, there's nowhere to take people. The ambulance is full of, a, there's kids in it. And there's, you know, it was the worst day of my whole life. And they're pulling dead people out of this overflow center. And there's, we've got an ambulance full of family members with children in it. There's a truck filled with dead people. People are screaming on the side of the road. There's a taxi cab in front of me with a woman who died. They're trying to, there's blood coming everywhere on this woman. And I'm like standing there in the middle of all this. And I call her and I'm like, I don't know what to do. And she's like, just start singing the Liberian gospel songs. You know, they love that. And I mean, that's like what I had to do. Cause it was like, I gave water to everyone that, you know, there's nowhere else to go. Um, and so that's what I did. And people liked it. I mean, they definitely, you know, they, they smiled and they appreciated. And one of the little boys, he looked at me and he said, God will bless you. I mean, he could barely talk. And um, that was, you know, what, and, and to think that that's what, you know, one of the last words that that boy would ever have said is, I mean, it just shows you something about the, the human Liberian, you know, the human spirit in general, but Liberians as well. Um, so in Haiti, was Haiti your first trip out of the country? So I don't know if you want to get too far into that. So we were, I made a sign, send Katie to Haiti. And because of political unrest, we ended up going to Central America. Ah, okay. Haiti. I went to Panama. We went to the jungles. But uh, yes, it was my first time out of the country. I was 17. And then after that, I had gone several other places. I went to Honduras for a summer, Bolivia for a summer, a lot of like Latin America, Philippines. I went for three weeks, but all, all of them were with my, you know, we're definitely through the church in the beginning. Um, yeah. Uh, so um, when did you, did you end up going to, to, to college? Like how did you raise money to to go to school then? I mean. Yes, I went, actually got. Did a, you also hold a sign outside of shopping centers? <laughs> I did. Bill Clinton actually gave me some money. No, um, seriously, I got a service award. I have the most amount of community, ser- community service hours in my county. Um, still no one has beaten my community service hours, but it's a challenge. Um, and I wasn't doing it to go to college. I was doing it because it felt good to help people. And I think it helped me get out of my own, you know, crap that I was dealing with. And uh, my guidance counselor, and you know, I had a good guidance counselor. And she's like, you can get a scholarship to college. I didn't even know what a scholarship 
was. I never heard of that before. So she explained and helped me get. And so I went for two years and went to a community college, Raritan Valley Community College in New Jersey. It's funny. I just did a commencement speech there last year. And I never thought I was smart enough to go to college. And here I was doing the commencement thing. But then I transferred to a four-year school in Minnesota. Um, it's called North Central University. And I graduated. And my first job out of college when I was 23, I'm 33 now. So I've been in Liberia 10 years. I spent about half my year in Liberia and the other half of the year fundraising and, you know, raising, raising the oh, rain bells, raising, raising awareness. Um, so I moved to Liberia at 23. It was my first uh, my first job out of college was a paid internship with Samaritan's Purse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, when I went there with them, I met a little girl on the street that was asking me to help her go to school. Um, and you know, an, you meet an 11 year old girl who literally tells you her story. She was giving oral sex for clean drinking water, and um, and I was I mean, it's an intense story, but it's it's. The truth. I mean, you can read about that in a Nicholas Kristof article or in half, you know, a book or, you know, somewhere. But when you're looking a child in the face and you know her name and, you know, it's like you can't walk away from that. So obviously I didn't know that was going to turn into an organization like she, you know, one kid turns to seven kids. They bring their friends and it's 30 kids. And I'm using social media to like tell stories and people are wiring me money to Liberia. Um, and this New York city tax attorney was like, you know, you really need to make this a legitimate NGO, like an organization. I'll help you set up your 501c3. And I felt like I wasn't smart enough or pretty enough or Ivy league enough. I wasn't enough. And I was like, I can't do this. Um, I was just insecure. And my best friend said, get over yourself. It's not about you. That's really interesting to me that you say you're insecure because I mean, just in this conversation, you're projecting this, um, this, this, this image of, of, um, you know, of, of just tremendous confidence uh, and just, just the image of, of you being somehow insecure. You know, I, I do a lot of these interviews and it's like, you know, I could tell just from the first like few minutes that you were like an extremely confident and, and enthusiastic and energetic person. Um, and so the idea that at some point you would be like insecure, uh, is, is sort of kind of bizarre to me. Well, I think like, in the international development world, there's like a type of person that does, you know, in that field. And I wasn't that type of person. Like I wasn't, I didn't, I don't have my master, you know, like I, everyone, you know, lots of people for that work for more than me have master's degree now or, you know, but like, I was like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not that stereotypical international development person. So I think that's where the insecurity came from. Um, I think I'm more secure. I mean, maybe I've always been, I don't know. I'm, I think part of it also comes when, you know, from when you've done stuff, you know, it's not like, I'm like, you know, it's been 10 years and I've done stuff. And I think when you've watched, I mean, definitely Ebola is the ultimate like perspective giver, you know, like you're like, you watch a lot of people die and it puts everything into perspective. But I think the confidence was there. Um, Mm-hmm. So, I wanted to ask you about Liberia more generally in 2006. So the first time I mentioned there, I was there twice. I was there once in 2008 and then again in 2012. And just the transformation between 2008 and 2012 in those four years was like tremendous. It was just so much more built up. And, yeah. you know, four years later after my, my first trip and granted, I, you know, I should say that the first time I was there was, was like as a journalist covering Bill Clinton, who was traveling in the country for like eight hours. So I didn't have like have a, a huge, um, an in-depth experience there, but you know, I think I saw enough to like see the, a bit of the infrastructure of Monrovia. The second time was, a, was, a, I was there for a, a little longer and got out of the city a bit, but you know, again, just the, the, the difference in those four years was tremendous. And I can only imagine what it was like in 2006, what, I mean, what was 
the Liberia that, that you entered like? And, and what were those first you know, few days in, in the country like for you? I mean, the first thing I saw, like, you know, for, the first thing that anyone said to me, this guy looked at me and goes, have you been to Africa before? And he said, no. And he goes, Africa is an emotion. And I'm like, what the heck does that mean? I think you learn pretty quickly what he's talking about. It's, I mean, there were still empty bullets you know, bullet hole, like um, bullets on the ground. And, and just like what you've seen, I mean, I've seen the progression over the years. I mean, 2006 was pretty, like one of the first things I saw was a big sign that said, rape is evil, stop it, sponsored by Coca-Cola. And I was like, where am I? Like this is, and then, but then there was like the beautiful, obviously the vibrant colors and, you know, the woman carrying her baby with a machete and the, you know, stereotypical, like the bananas, but she's singing, you know, you expect, you know, I think your first, and I'm, you know, my first time really living somewhere, I went there for my first time for six months, um, you know, and it was, you know, I, and, and then just like what you, I mean, there wasn't a road. We were like off-roading from, there was no airport. You like land and you go and like pick up, you're like, it's like there's an airport now. I mean, to, you know, relatively speaking, um, the countries developed those signs that said rape is evil, stop it, have been replaced by pay your taxes to mama Liberia. And many buildings have been built up and, you know, every single building was bombed out and looted. And now there's only a handful of those buildings left. Um, and anything that's been, that's not safe has, you know, pretty much been not you know, many of those buildings have been knocked down. Um, and no, there's, a, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, you see a huge amount of progress. I think 2006, it's come um, such a, such a long way. I mean, the war in Liberia, there was a 14 year civil war that ended in 2003. So the country had completely been devastated. I mean, beyond any belief, every single form of infrastructure in the country was, was decimated and gone. Um, and hand it over to, you know, this is, here you go, Madam President, to rebuild this whole thing. Um, and, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't need to get political, but, I mean, in a very short, you know, in, in that time that I've been there over the 10 years, there has been so much progress. Um, so you mentioned earlier the, the kind of origin moment where you decided that you wanted to stay in Liberia and do something to, to help. How did you get the idea that a school was going to be, or building a school, was the right way to channel uh, your your energies, your resources, and, and your intellect. Yeah, I don't think like every single thing we've done has been a response to Abigail. So Abigail's, I often you know I'll talk about her because you know she's one of our first students who I you know she told me that she was involved in sex work and her parents were um, you know in the died in the war and she was left to high class prostitutes that were taking care of her and this is the way that she was going to survive and she was getting like how did you start this and to get a glass of water so she asked me to help her go to school and I did so it's always been a response to her then she goes to school and you know and she's not learning anything um, and I'm and using her as an example there was you know at this 150 kids that we were paying their school fees to school and and we start so then we started this after school program for tutoring and we really could just tell like we didn't have this big M&E like data analysis program at that time. But we could just tell the kids were learning more in the after school program than they were. I mean, they were even telling us than they were in school. Was it the curriculum or what, what was it that was different? That, that was um, I mean, you, we actually we paid teachers on time. We, they, we were there. So I think the number one part of it is accountability. So like, you know, we would you know, we're there to see if people showed up or not. I mean, showing up is like, you know, I don't know what percentage of the battle, but um, that's a big part of the broken infrastructure in the school systems is that, you know, there's not accountability. So teachers don't have to show up. 
Um, but we, you know, so we were, you know, they showed up. Um, I don't know if it was the curriculum, the after school curriculum or not. It's like, we showed that we cared. I think that was it. Um, there was, we did, we, we had a feeding program so that we, every, there's a lot of data around having, you know, school meals, you know, increased attendance for children. I mean, these are, anyway, the community said, I, you know, and then the kind of like the cherry on the cake was running this after school program. The kids seemed like they were learning more in the after school program. They didn't want to leave. And then I would, I showed up to their school, which was like the best school in the area. And like the kindergarten teacher was watching pornography on her cell phone. And, um, and she's a church lady. And I, I was looking, I looked through the window and just saw it. And it, I mean, she was very embarrassed. And I mean, the, she's in a kindergarten class. Um, and the kids had their head down or something. It's not like she was showing them, but I was like, this is not working. So I went to There's some so much the- really a lot bizarre about that, that scene that you're describing. I don't know. There's a lot, obviously there's a lot of, it is super bizarre about it. It's a, it's a, it's a sweet little church lady who is on her $30 cell phone that, you know, and so I went to the community and I was like, well, what's going on? Like, like what is up with these schools? And she's like, and they're like, this is how, you know, the schools just are not good. Like there aren't good schools here. And I'm like, well, what's the answer? What can we do to fix it? And they're like, we need to start. So the community wanted their own school. So that is like, and the community means like we work with this women's group, the West Point Women for Health and Development. It was, um, you know, the elders and the, you know, so they they all want their own school. So I was like, I don't even know how, I barely know how to use a comma in a sentence. Like, why are we start, you know? But this is what the people want, and it's like, so that's how we started. And then we, um, the we were looking for a building. There was no place to get a building. So the president of Liberia heard we were looking for a building. She invites me to her house. I'm like super. Nobel Peace Prize laureate sitting in her gazebo on her property. And she looks at me and she said, as long as you're serving the children of Liberia for free, you can have this building. Gives you this bombed out looted building. Um, so that's how it started. Then I ended up winning this million dollar grant through the Chase American Giving Awards through Chase Bank through getting the most amount of Facebook likes on uh, in a contest. And we opened a school. I mean, it was very, it's everything has been very much community led and cute. Like, that's why like people were like, what are you doing fighting Ebola? Like, aren't you a school? And I'm like, yeah, we have a school, but we are an organization that responds to the needs of Abigail, you know, and, and her. And now what I've seen, you know, the need is changed. Like we, you know, so the school ran for, and it's still open. It's like we, for two years. Well, um, what, what year did you uh, get that grant and, and uh, meet Ellen Johnson Sirleaf? Um, I, I met Alan Johnson in 2010, um, won the grant in 2011. And then we ran the school. We had, at that point, we did have an ME officer. We were tracking our students and could see that our students' learning outcomes, some of them were leaping forward two, one, you know, some of them were leaping three grade levels ahead. Was it our curriculum? Um, we were using the Liberian national curriculum and then, like, uh, we were adding, we, our, we were adding, um, you know, adding other things to it, with supplementing it, sorry, supplementing um, stuff that we had based off of, you know, we had a, a principal that was from the United States. So she was supplementing with different, uh, at the time, that's what we had. Um, and then, so we, we ran the school for a year. We have, it's not just a school, it was every single thing that a child needed, every barrier that she faced. So we had um, reproductive health, we had um, regular health. So like deworming programs, malaria medicine. Um, we had, um, our teachers, international teachers co-teaching with librarians. There was social work programs and mental health. If a child missed a day of school, we were at her house the next day wondering why, you know, 
We had parent trainings after school. Like it was everything. And it, it, you know, it's like a, it's treating the whole child. And then, um, and then Ebola hit. So it was like what it really taught and, and showed us all as an organization is that like we could have had a billion dollar school with children who were going to Harvard. And if Liberia is vulnerable, these children are still vulnerable. And until Liberia is strong, our children remain, you know, re- remain at risk. Um, and so after six months on the front lines of, of, of seeing that and three of our children losing their whole families, um, they themselves didn't die, but they lost their parents and their extended family. Um, we realized that unless Liberia is strong, you know, our, our students still remain at risk. Um, so our school is up and running again. And, and it, you know, we we're a lot leaner than we used to be in the sense that um, it's run by Liberians. We have a Liberian principal, Liberian teachers, um, we try to get, you know, they get the best training we can get. We've hired teachers from this USAID teacher training program. But our our attention is really, I mean, it's definitely we want to make sure that those girls have a future. But we've realized that they have a future if Liberia has a future. So we're working to support the Ministry of Education um, in, in, in rebuilding the education system. Um, I, I want to talk about that. Uh, but before I, we, we go there, I, I'm just kind of curious to learn, like, how how did your like like schools closed right during uh, the Ebola crisis for a, a long period of time? So how did your center transition? Like, what did you guys do during like the height of the Ebola crisis? I mean, you told me personally, you know, what, what you're out doing, but did your yeah. your school um, apparatus exist in any meaningful way during the crisis? I mean, originally we were thinking we we're going to give our students homework, and like you know, we asked them to. We had this like partnership with UNICEF came and trained our stu- you know, trained our kids and um, on how to you know wash your hands and to take care of yourself, and and then we were like, well, we're we're going to give our students homework to keep them in indoors because we don't want them to move, and we've told them you know don't leave, try not to move, you know avoid big groups, and like our focus was going to be there. But then when Ebola really, I mean, our students lived in the epicenter of the entire Ebola, you know, in all of West Africa, the most heavily hit area was West Point community, which is where all of our students live. So, I mean, we couldn't just give them homework assignments while they're, you know, while they were like fighting for their lives. Um, and so what happened was originally we were, um, and that's what we wanted to do. The whole area was quarantined and um, the community came together. Actually, um, World Health Organization brought everybody together, which was great. And it was the elders and the Muslim group and the Christian group and the women's group and that, you know, the youth group. And they all came together and um, WHO asked them what, you know, you know, tr- tried to talk to them about. I don't know, like the guy who, who led the conversation, we couldn't, you know, he had a really strong accent. So we didn't really understand what he's saying. But the community came together, which was awesome. And so when he left, I just said, you know, what's the major problem? What, what is the community facing? And they're like, we call for an ambulance and the ambulance comes five days later. And I'm like, so you need an ambulance. And they're like, yes, we need an ambulance. So I called one of my donors. So like what we be ended up becoming is like the community was fighting for themselves and we became the backers of the community. It was like, what do you tell us what you need? And like, they didn't have the, they didn't have access to the resources that they needed. So I said, all right, if we get an ambulance, like who's going to drive the ambulance? And they're like, well, we'll choose the drivers. And I'm like, all right, well, we'll get, I'll try to get um, World Health Organization and MSF to train the ambulance drivers. So we did both. We got them both. We, got, we, had, them, we had like 10,000 trainings for these drivers. Cause I'm like, if anyone gets hurt, of course, more than me is going to look like really bad. So, um, you know, but it was, com- it was a community led effort. They told, I said, you say, you set the standards for how much, you know, that they, they nominated, they had their whole hierarchy for every community pretty much, you know, has these, but like they had a chief 
opinion officer who still works than me. They had like, you know, they have the head, they, they appointed this guy named Archie Jabassi to be the head of, um, what is it called? The active case finding. And then like, and they each they they have zones and they picked you know people from each zone to go and go to door to door looking for the cases. So we worked with them and it was like they great they needed they were going door to door but they didn't have any boots. So it was like great we need to get boots. So um, you know and it, unfortunately you would go to these organizations that are handing out boots and you're like well this community boots needs boots. They're like well we can get them in two months. You know you have to go through this whole bureaucratic system to get boots and and where where we could fit in is like I could text a donor and have the money in my bank account the next day and go get the boots. Like and so that's kind of the role that we would end up playing is like supporting those in the community. Uh, and that's what our our team um, our teachers and our school our school nurse led home health care um, teams. I mean we told our staff that they were going to get paid whether they did stayed at home or whether they helped and it was up to them um, and they wanted to fight for themselves there was a pride in fighting for their own country um, obviously there was a huge risk um, thankfully I'm so grateful that not one of our staff members got sick um, and you know both our, our staff at the time you know our, our original staff as well as I mean at one point we had over 900 people on our payroll um, but we made it very clear um, when we were paying people that this was just because of Ebola and it was month to month and I wasn't sure when it was going to end. Um, and it was only to support, you know, to give recognition and compensation for community, you know, the community actions. I mean, people needed help to feed their families at that time because, um, you know, business was, was not good. Um, so you just had like donors uh, on your um, sort of speed dial that were just totally willing to to pitch in in situations like this. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Well, who, I mean, I feel like who wouldn't give, I mean, if you're like, if you were standing in the middle of an Ebola, like war zone and you texted anybody wouldn't like, regardless of how much money they had, of course. They, and I think like the, 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 one of the things that we have that more than me is, you know, has an advantage with is there's a lot of trust. I mean, there's trust with our donors, but there's trust with the community. There's trust up and down. We have trust. So yes, there was, um, there were donors that became, um, on our speed dial, as you as you put it, that wouldn't necessarily give to girls' education or my school, uh, but were interested in in helping with uh, the Ebola epidemic. One oh. one guy in particular, he's all about animal rights. Like that's what he cares about. His name's Chris Hoare. He, he's animals, animals, animals. But like I knew him from a friend of a friend, and he was following me on social media. Um, my Instagram started blowing up because I was telling real stories about what was going on on a daily basis, and so people were watching that. Um, and they, they're like, tell us how we could help. Um, and there was a point where it was like, it wasn't money anymore that we needed. It was, you know, like it was the capacity to get things done. Um, and that's why I was saying, um, I mean, it comes back to education. Um, you were, I mean, your stories kind of make me think of like a common, um, issue or common problem with a, a lot of NGOs, a lot of international NGOs, or even local NGOs is that their success is almost predicated on the talents and the magnetism of their founder, as opposed mm -hmm. to like institutional structures that could, um, keep the, um, NGO or the program alive. If like tomorrow their founder was like hit by a bus. Um, so I mean, like, do you, worry or, or do you have like concerns that um that more than me is like very tied up in in you and your personality and your ability to get things done um i mean absolutely in the beginning and i don't mean to suggest sorry that you would be hit by a bus tomorrow <laughs> well, I, I i have asked myself that question before and i hope i don't get hit by a bus but if i do i, I actually at this point 
in the organization. We founded in 2009, the more than we would go on. So I feel confident in that. I mean, but I do think that in the beginning days, yeah, of course it's like that. I mean, until you have like any proof that what you're doing is actually working, um, there is, uh, there's that concern. Um, so, so you said you do have that proof um, and you want it to, to scale up and you're working with the Ministry of Education you mentioned earlier to try and what I presume uh, replicate the model to other places in Liberia, I'd suspect. Well, so where we're at today is that, I mean, the proof is that, I mean, we've our one school costs, us, it's like not exactly the most scalable school in the world. I mean, we have like a lot of programming that goes on, you know, like I said, we, it's health and, you know, mental health and food programs and, you know, sexual reproductive, like it's, and then it's, um, school training and we, we have money to hire the best teachers that we can find in the country. And we have a great principal and, um, you know, to do, we can replicate that. It would just cost a lot of money. And is, you know, so what we're actually looking at right now is, um, you know, we're, have you ever heard of Bridge Academy where we were in the conversation with, Bridge Academy, we, the Minister of Education and myself just went to um, Kenya and Uganda to look at the schools there and to see the impact that they're having firsthand um, and, and, and hear about the, the results that they've been having. Um, and they're a low-cost intervention. So we're talking to them about what it would look like for Bridge to partner with the Ministry of Education um, in doing that. And, and, and normally they're parent-funded um, low-cost school option, but in this case it would be that the government funds it. Um, along with, you know, maybe help startup help from from private philanthropy. Um, so what we're kind of what more than me is becoming is is we are catalyzing change through organizations that are able to have a big impact on a on a larger scale um, at a lower cost. Um, so what what are ways that people could help you help help your organization? I mean, I, I would suspect that most of my listeners are you know here in the United States, or actually I know they are here in the United States. We have <laughs> keep stats on that. Um, yep. but you know, and, and like, how could they help? What, what can they do to get, to get involved? Yeah. I mean, I think that we all know, I mean, I, we, the number one thing is like, you're not going to be able to get on an airplane and fly to Liberia. Like that's definitely not the best way to help. Um, at this point, I mean, the number one way that you can help any organization that you believe in is definitely by financially supporting them. And, um, that's, I mean, at this point we're working with Bridge Academy to see, you know, do whatever we can do to, to make sure we get education to all, um, every single child in Liberia to help rebuild the education system. And, and in order to do that, we're going to ha have to, um, supplement the government, um, funding for the first couple of years. So definitely need financial support. And then if, I mean, if you'd like to stay on this journey, I mean, we don't have like more than me is very, I think we're, we're pretty open about um, our journey and, and sharing that. So if you're interested in, in following along, I mean, definitely you can stay in touch through social media. We need your help um, through in the way, you know, through your financial help and also please spread the word about, um, about what we're up to. And I know this is corny, but I also um, think this is a big part of, of our message of more than me. I mean, our mission is to, you know, is, is Abigail and, and to respond to her needs and um, we're, you know, to catalyze, you know, make transformative change for, for young girls in Liberia. But our, our message is about living for something bigger than yourself every day, no matter where you are, no matter who you are. Um, it's, you know, you know, when no one's looking, um, who are you and uh, are you living for something more? And, I mean, what about you? What's next for you? Do you, do you expect to stay in Liberia for many more years for, for your rest of your life, perhaps? Until I die. Um, <laughs> um, what's next for me is I want to use my life to help the most amount of people. So um, definitely, I, you know, we're in, we're in this organization is, is trend, you know, in a 
we're transitioning to, um, you know, what am I doing? I am helping more than me grow to a place where we can help the most amount of kids. And whether it's, I'm committed to staying in Liberia. I think it's really interesting to me that organizations span out to work in multiple countries when they haven't solved the problem in their own country, in the one country they started in. So I think it would be wonderful to, you know, that more than you went out of business in Liberia because we actually like helped solve the education issue. And, um, that's what's next for me. I mean, it's to, to do whatever we can and, you know, in, use everything that I have as a, as a way to, you know, to make sure that Liberian children and Liberia has a future. And I'm catching you, right? You're you're um, in a layover in, in the UK and you're on your way back to Liberia. Is that right? Yep. I will be there on Wednesday. So it's Monday. I'm on a layover right now. So it's quick internet. All right. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, Katie. This was great. Thank really you, Mark Goldberg. All right. Thank you all for listening. Sorry this was published a day late. I hope you don't mind. I'm sure you agree it was well worth it. So this conversation is one of many conversations I've had on this podcast now about the founding of a really unique and impressive NGO. There are lots of different uh, social entrepreneurs I've spoken with who really tell me the origin story, the genesis story of their big idea, of their NGO. And and this is really becoming, I think, a content type for this podcast that I've returned to several occasions At one point, I'll probably, on the website, create a category dedicated specifically to these kinds of stories. Off the top of my head, I can think of Jessica Jackley, the founder of Kiva, Um, my friend Victor Ochin, the founder of the African Youth Initiative Network, so many others. Anyway, I, at one point, will go and, and compile them all into a single content type that you can check out at your leisure. All right, bye for now.